welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. We are recording this on February 24th at 10.30 a.m. So as most listeners will be aware, Russia has begun an incursion into the Ukraine. Although we have been focusing on events in Ottawa, we did want to spend uh, an episode looking at what's happening there and providing some context. And really, there's no better person to do this than our, one of our original co-hosts, Craig Forces. Hi, Craig. Hi, Stephanie. It's it's nice to see you again and to speak with you, albeit over Zoom. Yeah, it's such a, a terrible situation that we're witnessing. But I think the thing I always try to emphasize is that we're doing cold takes, not hot takes. And I think providing the international legal context here is important. I, I have seen a lot of takes on Twitter, which says, what's the point of the United Nations? What's the point of international law? And there is an important point to these institutions that I, I think you're going to bring forward to this and to provide some context into how we can look at what's happening and some of the critiques and, and arguments we can make while we're still witnessing this, this really kind of turn of horrific events. Yeah. And thank you for that introduction and for that context setting. And, and I, I agree. So I, I should note that I'm here in my capacity. I, I am actually currently teaching international law at the University of Ottawa. It's one of the courses I regularly teach. In fact, the Ukraine scenario is one in which in the course that Professor Leah West and I conduct in the joint program, so law and international relations, we spend the better half of the course walking through scenarios in Ukraine from essentially the 2014 aftermath. Obviously, that's a course that's going to have to be rebooted now. I'm not a regional specialist, but it's certainly an area where I've watched developments with interest and especially what I'll call Russian invocations of lawfare. And so the invocation, selective invocations of principles of international law in a way that confuses and muddies the discourse around their conduct. Uh, and effort, it seems to me, to create some doubt as to the uh, illegitimacy of their conduct. And so uh, that's worth a conversation in its own right, how Russia has mobilized rules in international law to serve its own geopolitical ends. I, I will also say that I'm, I'm here in my personal capacity. Obviously, I'm commenting as a, an academic and, and not in any other capacity. Uh, and so that, that's my disclaimer, as always, for any kind of public-facing conversation. Just one final observation, Stephanie, before we get underway, and that's the comment you made about throwing one's hand and saying, what's the point of international law? And, I, and I'm sympathetic to that view. And, and certainly, especially now, given uh, the egregious violation we're seeing of international law and laws, uh, it's very difficult uh, for me to advance a powerful argument that international law matters in the literal sense that it it governs state conduct. But, but then I've never advanced that argument in the way I've approached international law and the way I teach it is with a, a strong view as to the role it plays in international relations. So it's it's not, at least when it comes to high politics, it's not a determining variable, but, but it is a variable that influences state conduct. And even in the context of Russia, in terms of the way that it's operationalized international law and rolled out what, and I wouldn't say incursion, as it's an outright invasion, uh, it's, again, selectively deployed principles of international law that were they not to exist, Russian conduct might be very different. It might be very different, for example, were this an event taking place uh, prior to the Second World War where these principles of international law were, were much less developed. So, so how do you want to march through this, Stephanie? How, how should we grapple with I feel like we're doing a, a forensic accounting of an ongoing murder, uh, so that presents challenges. Yeah. Uh, but how do you want to pursue this? So I, I think we should start from the beginning because obviously there's been a series of events that have led up today. Do you want to start? Does it make even sense to start at the dissolution of the Soviet Union? 
Sure. Okay. So again, I'm not a regional specialist, but but let me just give you the, the quick overview here. So the Soviet Union collapses in the early 1990s and the former Soviet republics, which were entities, sub-entities sub within the, the Soviet Union, uh, fission into separate independent states. Now, I think it's important because this will come up in our conversation about what's happening in the Donbass. There are certain prerequisites to becoming an independent state. So in public international law, broadly speaking, there are four criteria. So you have to have a permanent population, you have to have a defined territory, you have to have an effective government, and you have to have the capacity to enter into foreign relations. Uh, it's often the last variable that presents the largest conundrums, and perhaps we'll come back to this in discussing the Donbass situation. But the bottom line is, in the early 1990s, it was unequivocal that the former Soviet republics were now emerging as independent sovereign states in the international sphere. And there was never doubt of that. And, and Russia is the uh, successor state for the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation readily recognized the existence of these former republics as independent states and treated with them as such. So to suggest that there was any doubt as to the international status of Ukraine on the part of the Russians in the early 1990s is just retrospective nonsense. They were and remain members of the uh, international community, uh, member state of the United Nations, and so on and so forth. And I, and I would note that there's also a principle in international law known as state continuity, which is to say that states, once states, remain states until absorbed uh, or dissolved. And by absorbed and dissolved, I mean absorbed or dissolved in a manner compliant with international law. And international law bars, and this is a point we'll return to, bars conquest. It is uh, un unambiguously now as a means of territorial acquisition to use conquest. Uh, and that's been true arguably since 1928 uh, and has been firmly encoded as part of the DNA of international law since 1945 in the UN Charter. And you're referring to the Kellogg-Briand Pact? Yeah, 1928's Kellogg-Briand Pact, obviously uh, a, a provision, a treaty that suggested that conquest and force would not be used as a, a means of resolving international disputes in the course of international relations, obviously honored in the breach given the, the events of the Second World War and, and the precursor uh, events like in Manchuria and Northern Africa. But in 1945, the UN Charter codifies in what's known as Article 2 sub 4 that no state may use force against another state another state's territorial integrity and political independence specifically, or in, in a manner otherwise contrary to the principles of the United Nations. And the, the concomitant of that, the flip side, is that forceful acquisition of territory is a derivative act of illegality. And so conquest is, is un unambiguously illegal. So that's the events of the early uh, emergence of Ukraine as, as a state. And then let's fast forward, Stephanie, if, if you uh, agree to the events of 2014, yeah, where... Uh, the waters were muddied by the, a, a change in view in Russia and, and events in both Crimea and in the eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, the, the two oblasts that, that constitute the Donbass. So starting most famously, until recently at least, most famously with Crimea, here's where the, the Russians have cynically deployed international law in pursuit of their geopolitical objectives. So I, I won't comment on the strategic importance of Crimea, uh, nor uh, do I feel it necessary to comment on Crimea's historical relationship with Imperial Russia and its status in the context of the Soviet Union. Why the borders of Ukraine, as established in 1991, are firmly the borders that exist for Ukraine as a sovereign state. The former Soviet republics, when they emerged as separate states, embraced what in another context we would call the principle of Udi Posidetis, which is essentially a principle of state succession that says that when when entities that were subunits of a foundering empire emerge on the international stage, 
as a matter of expedience, in part, I'll call it the Humpty Dumpty rule, because it's difficult to sort of re-engage re or renegotiate these borders. Uh, as a matter of, of a practice, those administrative boundaries within the foundering empire become the international boundaries. They're elevated to that status. And, and can I just... Sorry, I was go just going to say that was the argument that the Kenyan representative made at the United Nations this week that basically, look, we, we, these were not borders of our choosing, but they're the borders we have, and we've chosen to make them work. Precisely. And it was the position embraced in Africa by the uh, what's now called the African Union in the aftermath of decolonization in that region. It was originally embraced also in Latin America with the collapse of the Spanish Empire in the early 19th century. And again, it's a, it's a very pragmatic stability enhancing principle of international law because these boundaries, these colonial administrative boundaries are arbitrary. They were drawn in places like Berlin, for example, for, for Africa. Uh, that's why there are a lot of straight lines on, on the map of Africa. Uh, they're arbitrary in terms of geography, arbitrary in terms of ethnicity, language, and so on and so forth. Uh, and yet to imagine that if those boundaries were not uh, permanent, to imagine that there would be then a straightforward renegotiation to repartition Africa is just an invitation to chaos and uncertainty. And the places where we've seen events questioning boundaries, like in Ethiopia and Eritrea and in Sudan, have been very fraught, violent, often horrific circumstances involving large-scale war. And so Udi Pustedes is a, a pragmatic approach, and it was effectively employed also with what we now call the Commonwealth of Independent States, or once called the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, that is the former republics of the Soviet Union. So Crimea's prior status moving back and forth between Russia and Ukraine under the Soviet regime is for purposes of international law. It was a, a component and remains a component of Ukraine insofar as international law is concerned. What happened in 2014 is that the Russians, for their own geopolitical reasons, uh, were keen on carving Crimea away from Ukraine. Keep in mind that Crimea remains, by reasons of the status of forces agreements and the like, a positioning port for the Russian Navy. And, and so what happened is that they, they leveraged, and uh, I would have to say accelerated or augmented, a sense of regional grievance in Crimea in terms of Crimea status in Ukraine. And as you'll recall, infiltrated what are now acknowledged to be Russian forces, state troops, into Crimea. At the time, Russia denied that these were state troops. They said they were either local militias or Russian volunteers, that is Russian nationals, but not under the effective control of the Russian government. This was all uh, an effort at lawfare. And we can talk about how they parlayed principles of international law to deny responsibility. But the bottom line is that these troops infiltrated Crimea. Uh, and thereafter, Crimea exercised a so-called right of self-determination in order to become an independent state and very quickly and promptly uh, decided to amalgamate with Russia. Now, it's beyond Russia and its satellites, the international community takes the view that this was not an appropriate expression of self-determination, which is a principle that exists in international law, but it depends on two uh, criteria. The first is that you have to be a people, and the concept of people is not well-defined. Uh, do not assume that a people necessarily means a coincidence of ethnicity, language, religion, et cetera. It's a more fluid concept. Uh, it's, it's sometimes contested. The more important for our purposes conversation, the second requirement is that the people in question be non-self-governing. And so self-determination is a principle that really grew from the decolonization in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where you had formal decolonizations of overseas empires. Uh, and non-self-governing was very clearly uh, present when you had London or Paris or other imperial powers ruling over far distant lands. Non-self-governing really means in practice either that you're a colony, less common but widely regretted or widely accepted is the idea that you're subject to alien subjugation, oppression, or repression, 
or alternatively, and this is less well accepted, that you're denied your ability to participate in what's known as internal self-determination, that is participation in the governance of the broader state of which you're a part. None of those were present in any credible basis in Crimea. There's also a procedural requirement. The expression of self-determination results in three possible outcomes in customary international law. There's either emergence as a separate state, that, that's what most people assume self-determination means. It means some sort of association with an existing sovereign state. So think about the proposals of the Parti Québécois back in the 1980s of sovereignty association with Canada. Or alternatively, it means the amalgamation of the self-determining people with an existing state. Um, and so choosing between those options, though, requires a process. And the process ultimately boils down to a free and fair referendum. You don't have a free and fair referendum when a territory is being occupied by foreign troops. And so on that procedural basis, which is a very important procedural basis, the idea that Crimea somehow exercised a legitimate form of self-determination is not accepted again, except by Russia and, and some of its close uh, supporters and allies. And so that means for all practical purposes that Crimea remains part of Ukraine and the response of the international community and by international community, I mean primarily the West has been to impose sanctions of a relatively limited sort and a failure uh, to recognize uh, Crimea is a component of, of Russia. And so a refusal to recognize uh, Crimea as a component of Russia. So that's Crimea. Then we get into the Donbass region. Uh, and the Donbass region, by the way, is uh, now partitioned, or as of this morning, was partitioned between uh, Ukraine government-occupied portions and then portions occupied by what I'll call separatist elements uh, in the region. Uh, this has, was also uh, a point of conflict in 2014, where you effectively had the separatist regions seeking to create a degree of autonomy violently enforced against the Ukrainian central government. Russia again played cagey games about whether it was there physically or not. It's clear that Russian forces have, and Russian equipment have been used in the Donbass separatist regions. The, the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 in 2014, which was done by a Russian uh, missile battery, which Bellingcat, to its enormous credit, was able to tra trace in its route from Russia into Ukraine uh, and then its use against the Malaysian Airlines. The, at the time, the, the, the militias that were using this Russian missile system seemed to have believed that this was a Ukrainian government uh, fighter jet. Uh, but the bottom line is that they also they effectively downed a, a civilian airliner with Russian equipment. Of course, things have developed enormously on the ground. Uh, now there's, there's no effort by Russia to deny its presence. And as of the last few, Russia has moved into the region in great number. And now within the context of the broader Ukraine conflict has invaded uh, Ukraine itself. Now, the intermediate step that we saw in the last few days was Russia declaring two people's republics, which I got to say, I mean, this is, this is really retro people's republic. When's the last time we saw someone declare a people's republic? At any rate, so two people's republics uh, in the two of the oblasts in the Donbass, and Russia was recognizing these as independent states. So the first question is, are they independent states? And recall the criteria for independence we mentioned a few moments ago, permanent population, defined territory, effective government, and capacity to enter into foreign relations. I will say on that last variable, capacity to enter into foreign relations means more than simply a competence under whatever domestic constitutional order you have in your so-called separate state. Uh, regarding yourself as independent and capable of entering into foreign relations. It also means the de facto 
ability to enter into foreign relations, which requires other states to treat you like a proverbial dance partner. And so there is a role for other states to effectively recognize or not you as an independent state on the international scene. And that departs a little bit from what doctrine requires in international law, but effectively you have to have what I'll call a critical mass of other states willing to treat you as independent if you're going to effectively exercise the competencies of statehood. Russia doing so is almost certainly not enough because it stands practically alone on this. I assume Belarusa will, will also embrace this, this position. But more than that, and this is really where the, the most potent counter argument, all this is totally moot to the extent that the two so-called People's Republic are the product of the aggressive use of force in violation of Article 2 sub 4. The international community, in fact, is obliged not to wreck product on the ground that results from the wrongful use of force violating Article 2 sub 4. And so to say that they're independent states would make nonsense of the better part of 75 years of development in international law. And just to build on that, I think one of the tactics Russia has also used is, is sometimes called passportization, um, yeah. which is like basically we have seen busloads of people who live in these regions go to Russia, get Russian passports, then they go uh, back to these regions, and then Russia can say, well, it has an interest in protecting its citizens right. in these regions, right? So it, it's the self-defense argument, kind of different layer. Is that is that correct? But that again, that's yeah, so deeply problematic. It, I'm assuming it, under international so, law. This is- this is what I'll call part of Russia legal trolling, right? So, so let's talk about self-defense. So, and, and self-defense is engaged here uh, in the Russian discourse. And I looked at the speech of uh, the Russian representative in the UN Security Council, Russia ironically as the presidency right now, the Security Council, and not only are they invoking a replay of this concept of self-determination for the two so-called People's Republics and the Donbass, but they are also invoking the concept of self-defense. So self-defense, so Article 2 sub 4 says no use of force, two exceptions to that. The first is where the Security Council authorizes force to respond to a threat or breach of international peace or security. That doesn't happen very often because of the exercise of vetoes by one or other of the great powers that constitute the so-called permanent five on the Security Council. We can talk about that if you wish. That means that a lot of the legal lifting in the area of use of force a justified use of force is done by the second exception, which is the concept of self-defense. So self-defense is found in Article 51 of the UN Charter. It's not, however, carefully defined. It does require that there be an armed attack. An armed attack has meaning. It means an armed attack, not just some sort of economic disadvantage, an armed attack. And that triggers then what's known as an inherent right of self-defense that persists until such time as the UN Security Council engages on the topic. Self-defense typically also requires, as a matter of custom international law, uh, two important elements, a third that is also important but isn't really engaged here, two important elements which are necessity and proportionality. So the use of force in self-defense has to be necessary to stave off the armed attack, uh, and it has to be proportional to the what's required to stop that armed attack. And so these are mutable concepts, and certainly there's a lot of debate about what they mean in practice. Can it extend, for example, to regime change? This has certainly been a debate since 9-11 in Afghanistan and, and, and other places. But the bottom line is that it's not an unconstrained opportunity for you on a pretextual basis to engage in aggression and essentially acquire the territory of another state. Uh, nor has it been used as such for the, for the most part in the past. And I, and I would underscore that the United States has been rightly criticized in its sometimes open textured and broad understandings of self-defense, think about the Bush doctrine, the so-called preemptive self-defense that was yeah. 
invoked, yes. although not strongly argued in the case of the Iraq war in 2003, that is that some sort of animus along with some effort to acquire weapons of mass destruction was enough to trigger a right of self-defense. And so in other words, there wasn't an armed attack. The armed attack was a, pre, was, was a possibility at some unknown period in the future. That was not embraced by the international community and many states went out of their way to deny the existence of such an expansive concept of self-defense. And the United States is, uh, itself rolled back the more dramatic scope of the Bush doctrine in more recent statements about the scope of self-defense. It's not, it's not an accepted uh, principle. Uh, so self-defense does have its guardrails. It's not, it's it, it, in part because you don't want it to be abused to mask acts of aggression. Acts of aggression include, for example, invasion, as we're seeing now in Ukraine. So how has Russia deployed self-defense? Well, there's an irony here. So I would say that at the international level, confronted with U.S. claims to self-defense. Russia, I would call it a traditionalist or even a reductionist power when it comes to understanding when force may be lawfully used in international law. It's contested the vision of self-defense that the United States has sometimes advanced. And so it's been quite uh, reductionist, uh, narrow. Do you mean, do you mean revisionist? Just clear. Do you mean reductionist or revisionist? not revisionist, uh, more reductionist. They want to reduce the scope, right? So, okay, sorry, just checking. Yeah, so re reductionist in the sense that they want to minimize the scope of the self-defense principle, in part because obviously they, they it, from a defensive perspective, broad self-defense is not necessarily useful for either Russia or uh, China in their broader international relations. Uh, and they want to enhance the primacy of the Security Council where they exercise disproportionate influence because they remain a permanent member of the of the UN Security Council. They are traditionalists in that respect at the international level, but in their near abroad, and so the former Soviet republics, they have been all embracing in their understanding of self-defense. And so to come back to your initial point, in the Georgia conflict in 2008, and then more recently in, in Ukraine, they've embraced a murky concept of self-defense that reaches even Russian speakers. And now in relation to this passportification you mentioned, Russian nationals, unilaterally declared as such by Russia. And somehow there's this defense of people as opposed to this defense against uh, armed attack by, by another state on the territory of, of Russia, which would be the conventional understanding of self-defense. And so they're, they're playing games with the ambit of self-defense in their near abroad that's very different from the position they've taken in, in terms of the far abroad. And so it's a cynical invocation. It's a form of lawfare. It's a cynical invocation. They've often in other contexts, even embrace the idea of humanitarian intervention, uh, which is not a recognized grounds in international law for intervention in the affairs of a of another state, forceful interventions. But in the near abroad, they've invoked humanitarian intervention uh, on occasion. Yeah, I think in so Georgia, in, in yeah. 2008, when they went in, in Georgia yeah. in 2008, they said this is a humanitarian intervention. Yeah. Um, which and, uh, is a choice you can make. And it's not been a sustained effort either. It's 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 almost the equivalent of, of firing off a bunch of tweets and throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall to see what, what sticks. They're not actually trying to shape international law. They're just they're basically just throwing sand in the eyes of the international community in an effort, it seems to me, to stave off a response from the international community, a sustained and collaborative response, perhaps in terms of sanctions. And so they're just muddying waters. Uh, it's not, it's not a I wouldn't consider it a genuine effort to shape international law. And nor do I believe that in their heart of hearts, the, the talented international lawyers who, who can, who the Russian Legal Academy, for example, would, would accept these doctrines, although I think there's probably a, 
there's an they are captive to an official state doctrine now that I think renders them less independent than than would be ideal. So, so I was going to say, so I think we've spent 25 minutes just on the background to this conflict, but it, it really does set the stage for where we are today in right. terms of of what happened. And I mean, in some ways, I mean, again, and I'm I'm the I went to internet law school, so but it seems pretty straightforward if you just go to two four of the UN Charter, which is it's not even the fact that Putin used force, it's the fact that he threatened force is also illegal yep. under international law. So 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 where where are we today? And and how are how are you breaking this down? Well it's an invasion, it's a violation of two sub four. You're seeing now statements coming out of foreign ministries all around the world saying this breaches international law. That's what they're really talking about as as well as potentially also commenting on what's going on, on the ground. So the, the the Russian view has been these are now separate independent states in the Donbass. They invited us to help defend them against Ukraine. So there's, there's it's it's meta in its irony in the sense that we're going to declare that these two regions that are part of Ukraine are now independent, and they then can invoke their own right of self-defense against Ukraine and invite us as a third state in to help defend them against Ukraine. And so we're actually exercising self-defense. Uh, and so there's this entire pretextual invocation of self-defense to convert what is clearly an act of aggression into an act of self-defense. It doesn't work that way. It just is unpersuasive uh, because the Donbass so-called people's republics are just not independent states. They are part of Ukraine. And so to invade the territory of another state and to try to occupy it or whatever Russia is going to do is a classic example of aggression. Like it's 1930s style. And so uh, to spin it any other way is absolutely unpersuasive. But the Russians will make that effort again, I think in an effort to perhaps divide Western opinion and weaken the counter response in the form of sanctions, and perhaps the last word on sanctions. So the, the, the invocation of sanctions remains within the discretion of other states. The Russians are not protected, for example, on the limitations on trade measures that are found in the WTO, because there's an exemption in the WTO that says in times of emergency, as decided by individual state members of the WTO, they may depart from what would otherwise constrain export controls, for example, under the WTO. Sanctions remain a discretionary decision by sovereign states in the sense that no state is obliged to continue economic relations with another state that would that would constrain the sanctioning state's sovereignty. There is a whole discourse out there, I acknowledge, that suggests that sanctions are somehow illicit in international law. I simply don't buy it. Uh, there is no state practice uh, that would justify its existence in custom international law. And I, I frankly do not think you can extract it from any treaty basis. So the bottom line is that States, and here in practice, we're talking about the Western alliance, are free to impose sanctions as a legal matter. The scope of the sanctions remains to be decided. We saw a ratcheting up of sanctions after Russia declared the so-called People's Republics independent. And then I assume after the outright invasion of the rest of Ukraine, as of this morning, we're going to see very serious sanctions. The great experiment in international relations, Stephanie, is what would real sanctions look like when directed against a great power? And so we have had sanctions obviously directed against states in the past, South Africa under apartheid, Iran uh, because of its weapons proliferation ambitions, and, and of course Iraq after the first Gulf War, which had all sorts of detrimental impacts on the broader society. What would it look like in a modern economy for Russia to be denied access to the financial services industry in the West? If they were disconnected from the SWIFT banking network, what would that mean for the Russian economy? It's an untested proposition right now. 
Whether the West will go that far it remains to be seen. Uh, there's certainly a lot of talk about it. It's often said that sanctions don't shape state behavior. They don't have the effect of changing state behavior. Uh, well, that, that's a proposition that may well be tested in the next few weeks. So you're right. We, we don't really know where this is going to go. I guess the last question I have for you is, you know, things are looking particularly grim. We don't have a crystal ball. I'm not sure we'd even want to look into it if we had one. But what happens if, as, been, as has been theorized, that the Russian government that would impose its own government on Ukraine. Um, what is what are the what what does international law have to say about the recognition of an imposed government? Right. So the starting premise in international law is what's known as the Estrada Doctrine, which is that generally speaking, states do not recognize other state governments. They they don't they don't emphatically make a statement one way or another. It's, it's just silence. Why? Because to choose to recognize another state government or another is itself an intervention in the sovereign affairs of that state. And so it's a neutrality, if you will, faced with, with changes in, in government. So for example, the United States does not recognize the new government of Canada after every election. It just doesn't happen in international discourse. There is, however, an important exception. So the Estrada Doctrine may be the default, but it's, it's not the rule that applies in every circumstance. The international law is quite different when it comes to puppet regimes. So governments that are installed and propped up through the illicit use of force by a third state. And so think about the circumstance in Afghanistan after the Russian invasion in 1979. In those sorts of circumstances, and I, I fear that this is the conversation we may need to have later in this invasion in the Russian context, if we had a so-called Ukrainian government that's installed and propped up by the Russians because of their active aggression, it's incumbent, I would say, and I, I think I'm not alone in this, it's incumbent on other governments in the international community to refuse recognition. It would be the equivalent of saying that the Vichy government were the de facto and legitimate government of France, notwithstanding it was installed by the Nazis. Uh, you know, that was all under a very different legal regime, but it has the same imprimatur, if you will. Uh, and so uh, international law here is, uh, I think, very demanding that states will be obliged to deny the legitimacy Russian installed and propped up puppet regime in Kiev. Craig, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy with uh, both your academic job and your and your job doing a review. So obviously, this will be something that I'm sure we will be returning to. I mean, we've only really covered the use ad bellum, the, the law that governs when force can be used in international law. We haven't even touched on the use in bellow, which is the kind of tactics and, and weapons you can use in warfare. Obviously, this is just early days. So I'm hoping you can come back on soon as, as events further develop. This is obviously a very sad situation and we miss you on the podcast. So it, if there's any bright spot on this, it's, it's been great having you back. Well, thanks for having me, Stephanie. And then like everyone else of the 2020 so far aren't great. <laughs> they are not too, no <laughs> too, too, too living too much history living too much history is no. exactly right uh thanks craig thank you very much stephanie